Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Let's pray and uh, let's get into God's Word this morning. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you're doing all across the earth. Lord, we thank you for uh, what you're doing in, in, in advancing your kingdom on the earth. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of uh, being a part of it, for the privilege of getting to sow, for the privilege of getting to, to uh, be your hands and feet you know, in spreading the gospel and spreading the message of love all across the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, the song we sang earlier about that divine exchange, God. That as the Son of God was high and lifted up, the Father's love came pouring down. Lord, we thank you that, that even right now, that you're releasing that divine exchange in the room. For our weariness, for your joy, for our circumstance, for your victory. Lord, we thank you for your love that's poured out for each and every single one of us. Lord, we thank you that, that even as the word is being preached this morning, that your Holy Spirit will begin to work in this place. Holy Spirit, we, we ask that you'll have free will, have free reign in this place. We avail ourselves to you and to your workings. Lord, I thank you that it's not by the eloquence of my preaching that lives are transformed, but it's by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we say you are welcome here. Yes. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... You know, I've been preaching a, a bunch of times uh, of late, and, and I realized that every time I preach, right, I, PD calls it a show hand. Like, I will spend four or five days trying to prepare and uh, put all the nuggets in, chicken mac nuggets, spicy mac nuggets, and everything, I will put it in, and, and then I'll come to, to service all nervous, and I'll be like, here, this is the last sermon I'm ever going to preach, and then I'm going to drop dead and die, you know? <laughs> And then I will go back home, and then if I'm preaching the next Sunday, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have nothing else left. <laughs> and then I'll worry, 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 and then I'll find something. And, and so today I was like, you know what, I'm just going to take it easy. No, we're going to chill. You know, it's, it's going to be a really simple sermon, some simple uh, nuggets, nothing too in your face. And we're going to start with Revelations chapter 2 this morning. <laughs> We're going to start with Revelations chapter 2. <laughs> I tell you, man, just some little light reading. Nothing, nothing too in your face, you know. We just gonna take it easy. Jason, last week, he said he was not going to preach on book Revelations, so I took the challenge, man. Okay, if you have a Bible, flip it open. We'll start with verse 1. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Let's underline that. You know, if you have your pen highlighter, underline that. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent 
and do the first works. Is there anything else? Or else, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let's read verse 5 again. It says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so this is um, Jesus' words through the Apostle John uh, and it's addressed to the church uh, in Ephesus. We have to know that the Ephesian church was known as the crown jewel of the colony churches. It is by far, it is noted to be the most mature congregation of the New Testament. When Paul came to the city of Ephesus, he found 12 men, and these 12 men professed to have only experienced the baptism of John. And then Paul prayed for them, and they experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And these 12 men formed the nucleus of what would be known as the Ephesian church. Okay? And through these 12 men, the Ephesian church became the most wonderful and mature church of the New Testament. Paul himself spent three months in that location, in the local church, and then another two years teaching in a synagogue. This is by far the longest time Paul has spent in a geographical location. This, this is significant. Acts chapter 19 accounts for that location. It says that all who were in Asia Minor heard the gospel. Now get, get this, the Holy Spirit is not like an exaggerator. It's, it's not like 10 people heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit, ah, oh, all heard the gospel. When the Holy Spirit says all heard the gospel, he really meant all heard the gospel. Every single person in Asia Minor heard the gospel through the work of the Ephesian church. And in the church of Ephesus, a new term was coined. And this term was the term unusual miracles said that unusual miracles were performed in that day. That means that the run of the male miracles, the knees, the blind eyes, they got a bit too mainstream and they got to hipster level miracles and it's a new level of miracles and they call it unusual miracles. This happened at the church of Ephesus. And if you read Ephesians, you know, you will know that, that many significant revelations, significant prayers that we pray to get today, significant sermons, they're all birthed from the things that Paul spoke about, Paul wrote about to the Ephesian church. You know, that, that, that amazing prayer that we pray almost once a month, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Come on. Significant apostolic prayer. Uh, in, in the book of Ephesians, it talks about the armor of God. We preach that on a regular basis. It also speaks about our adoption as sons and daughters. Significant. The work of the Ephesian church was extremely significant. It was so significant that Paul, when he was in a Roman dungeon, heard about their faith and love for the Lord. He heard about them. They were famous. They were well known for their faith and their love. And that is the Ephesian church that Jesus was writing to in the book of Revelations. And so, we have to ask ourselves the question, how did the pride and joy of the Apostles Paul, Apostle Paul's ministry, how did the, the crown jewel of the colony churches, how did this most mature, significant church that was known for this faith and love for Jesus come to the point that, that, that was brought up in Revelations 2, that you, the church of Ephesus, have left your first love. 
and they were at the brink of having their lampstand removed. And it's not like the furniture lampstand. The lampstand speaks of influence. It speaks of effectiveness. It speaks of being a light to the darkness. It speaks of being a solution. How did a church like that become a church that left its first love? Light reading. <laughs> Lord said of them that despite your works, you have left your first love. You know, the, 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 the verse talks about how they, they tested the apostles, they persevered, they had patience, they labored for his namesake. And they did all these things. But nevertheless, Jesus said that they left their first love. And the same question can be asked of you and me this morning. Now, we have works. We have done amazing things. We come to church on Sunday. We have Friday cell group, the occasional Wednesday prayer meeting. And uh, we give, we sow, we go on missions. We pray for the sick. We cast out demons uh, semi-regularly. We... we <laughs> pretty sure it's a demon-free zone. And and so we do all these things. But can it be said of us that we are still zealous for the Lord? Can it be said of us that we are still about our first love? Can it be said of us that we abide in this place of first love? What is first love? G. Campbell Morgan said this, that first love is the abandonment of all for love that has abandoned all. Sure. This is like excellent pickup line. I will abandon all. <laughs> but this is what first love is. It's the abandonment of all. It's that white hot, fiery, passionate love. How many of you remember when you first fell in love? How many of you? How many of you remember the things you've done when you first fell in love? How many of you? Uh, Amy is my one and only true love. I've, I've had no other before her. Too bad she's not here, but she will listen to this recording. Uh, she will, man. Uh, I'm about to let some dirty laundry out. Um, I remember when, when I first uh, was trying to pursue Amy, I asked her, like, hey, what's your hobby? What, what do you like to do? And she's like, I like to ride bikes. I was like, okay. I've never, I, at that point, I was like, the last time I rode a bike was probably when I was 10 years old. I was like, okay, I need to pick up bike, bike riding. And so I went to buy a bike. I spent like $1,000 on a bike. Yeah, yeah. I tell you, man, white, hot, fiery, passionate love. I was like, forget this. <laughs> I was like, put the money down and pick up bike riding. And I remember that we, we, we did this long distance bike riding, uh, bike rides that were excruciating. You know, you ever had a feeling when you're, paddle, when you're paddling and then your legs are cramping up and you know you should stop, but then... The girl is in front of you and then you paise to ask her to like, hey, can you slow down so I can rest my leg? So you just keep going. And remember at some point where like, you know, your, your legs just lose feeling, you know. It's like totally no feeling. And then you're like, the thing just goes on its own and then you're just like, okay, you know what? I don't know how I'm going to stop, but you know, we'll see. Crash in a tree or something. <laughs> I remember I, I, uh, when I first dated her, I showed up at her void deck with a guitar. <laughs> I tell you, confirm got people do the same thing. And uh, I showed up to avoid that, and uh, and I called her. And I was like, "Hey, calm down." 
And as she was walking down the stairs, I was there with a guitar. I was serenading her with like all the ama carry the, the plastic bag walking around. I was like, <laughs> what song I sing? It was the Bruno Mars song that I will not. When I see your face, it's not a thing I wouldn't change. And so, and so I, because you're amazing just the way you are. Uh, all those people I laugh. I know, you confirm sing to your girlfriend. Eh? And so these were the things I did when I first fell in love. I remember when I first got saved. I was so passionate and, and zealous for the Lord. I, I went on my MSM Messenger. How many of you know what MSM Messenger is? And then I divided my contacts into saved and unsaved. I was like, these unsaved heathens, I will convert them. <laughs> And so, and so I was like, man, I was doing that. And uh, I remember I was still part of the Boys Brigade then, you know, who, which is a Christian CCA. And, uh, and, you know, we have certain regulations because, you know, it's a CCA winning school. But I was like, I don't care. And so I went and preached the gospel every day until the point where my officer was like, hey, uh, I think you probably should stop coming. Uh. It's like, because they, they, they had their program to do and I was being disruptive. And uh, it's, it's still one of my pride and joy of being too Christian for a Christian CCA. And so, <laughs> I was too Christian for a Christian CCA and I actually got uh, asked to leave in a very gracious way. <laughs> and so the question of the hour, back to it, it it's how did, did that church in Ephesus leave their first love? How did, they, how did they come to that point? And we must recognize the phrasing here. They left their first love. First love did not leave them. First love did not abandon them. They made a conscious decision to leave their first love. Jesus will never abandon you. Jesus will never forsake you. But you can make decisions and choices to choose yourself outside of a relationship with Jesus. And that's a sobering thought for you and me. Yeah. Amen? No, but I think the more important question for you and me okay, is, is not so much to analyze how, what, what were the significant events that led up to them coming to this point. But I think the significant question that you and I have to ask ourselves this morning is how do we stay in a place of first love? How do we stay in a place of white hot, fiery, passion for the Lord. How do we stay in a place of this quote, complete ad- abandonment for the love that has abandoned all? How do we stay in that place? You and me. And we preachers have been, you know, in some sense guilty of romanticizing the idea. You know, you've left your first love, now come back to your first love. And people will waddle to the altar and fall on knees and will pray. It's great, you know, I, I've had so much significant encounters here, but, but note this, that in Revelations 2, can we put it back up again? Jesus was saying, uh, the next verse, He didn't say, hey, just come back. He gave them actual practical tools, actual steps to take. He said, do this. He said, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. Amazing three-point sermon. That's where the three-point sermon started. And he said, remember. He said, repent and return to first works. It's, it's practical. 
He gave us steps. He gave us tools for us to, to, to exercise, to come back to that place of first love. Amen? And these three things, you know, remember, repent. Repentance is so much more than just coming to the altar, crying, and having your mucus on the ground. It's so much more than the sorrow of a moment. Repentance is not judged by the sorrow of a moment. It's judged by its fruit, transformation. That is what repentance is. It, it translates into a change of mindset as well as a change of lifestyle. It's not just about feeling sorry, feeling guilty for what you've done. And it said, come back and do the first works. I, I think that we as a church has lost that grit, that, that uh, uh, passion, that, that drive, that, that tenacity that says, you know what, this love is a love that I'm willing to fight for. This love is a love that I'm willing to protect. How many of you are following me? You know, I used to be a... a, a this is Andre's opinion. Everybody say Andre's opinion. I believe in falling in love. You know, I believe that, that you, you see someone and, and you see some of the things they do and you're like, oh, your heart is moved and then you fall in love. But I believe that in order to grow and mature in love, it has to move from something that's involuntary, something that's passive, into something that's active. Am I making sense to you? That, that falling in love is something that you can't really control. It's, not, it's something that, that it really is passive. But you have to understand that love is so much more than just a passive emotion. But love is active. It's a series of choices. That means to say that you know, as you mature in the relationship, you will see weaknesses. You will see things that you don't like. You will see obstacles, circumstances. But it's in that place of, of, of hardship that you make a decision, you make a choice to love. And that is what love is. It's, it's, it's a choice. It's work. Amen? And that's my sermon title for this morning. It's Love Works. Everybody say that with me. Love Works. Say that again. Love Works. And I'm not saying this morning that you have to work for love. How many of you are following me? You don't have to work for the affirmation, for the approval of the Lord. But here's the thing. If you have a relationship with someone, you have a relationship with Jesus, and you treasure and you value it, you will do everything in your power, everything you will release, that you have at your disposal, you will release to protect this relationship. You are willing to fight for it. You're willing to, to do things for it. You're willing to work for it. That's what I mean by love works. It's not passive. It's active. Amen? And we as a church, we need to come to a place of, of active love. But it's not just a passive emotion where it's not just receiving God's love by osmosis. <sighs> but we are willing to make significant changes. We are willing to do things. We are willing to lay down parts of our lives to protect this love. Amen? Yeah. Love works. 
And, and I was asking myself the question, how much of this love is, is evident in my life? I, I was at, at a place of, of re-evaluating where I was at in my relationship with the Lord. That it cannot just be a Sunday affair. It cannot just be when I'm gathered around believers. It has to be a consistent, everyday thing. How do I see more of this white-hot, fiery, passionate first love in my life beyond just a Sunday service? How do I progress? How do I grow? How do I advance in this? The nature of the kingdom is this. God always rewards sacrifice with His fire. God always responds to sacrifice with His fire. And sacrifice is not just cows and goats. Sacrifice really is a step beyond what's convenient. Moving out of what's comfortable. Moving out, what, moving out of what is the normal. And when you make a decision to sacrifice, to move out of your comfort zone, God responds with His fire. Could it be that the key to sustaining this fire of first love, could it be that that key to fire for you, your life and mine is to sacrifice, is to move out of what is comfortable, is to move out of what is normal? Am I making sense? Come on. I think I'm preaching better than you're responding. Here's the thing. If you keep the fire burning, the fire will keep you burning. If you keep the fire burning, the fire will keep you burning. If you sacrifice, if you tend to that flame of first love, that fire is what's going to keep you burning for the Lord. We need to, to ask ourselves, what are some areas that we can lay down? What are some areas that we can give up to the Lord? to sustain this fire. Amen? There are three things again. It said, remember from where you've fallen. Repent and return to first works. And know, this this will make, like like what I said, a great three-point summary, but I really want to focus on one area that the Lord brought up in, in that passage. And it said, return to first works. Say that to me. First works. And first works is not the uh, first in a numerical sense. Go back to the first things you've done. But the word first in its Greek actually means the principal, fundamental, foundational works. Okay? It's the principal, it's the fundamental, it's the foundational works. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. He said, go back to your fundamentals. Go back to the foundation. Go back to the principle. Go back to where you begin. When a nation is founded or when you start up an organization or company, your foundations, your key practices, your principles, and all these things form a document called a constitution. How many of you know that? It forms a constitution. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, we all of us are part of the kingdom of God. Amen? We are, are partakers. We are participants. But we are also foot soldiers for the kingdom of God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the constitution of the kingdom of God? 
what are the key principles, what are the key foundations, what are the key elements of the kingdom of God? Because this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that in order to stay in first love, you have to stay in the first works. You have to stay in the principal things, in the fund- fundamental things, in the foundational things. Yes. Amen? Yes. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. What is our constitution? What is the fundamentals of your life and mine as believers, as Christians, as people who are a part of the kingdom of God? How many of you are following me this morning? Yeah. Yes? And I believe that, that these things are found in a passage in the Bible. And scholars describe this passage as A, the constitution of the kingdom of God, calls it the the acme of Christendom, the pinnacle of Christian living. It is the longest teaching of Jesus' ministry. Some call it the greatest teaching. Come on. It contains the central tenets of Christian discipleship. And it's also interesting that this teaching is referred to In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when it says that early Christian converts devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And it's repeated again in Matthew chapter 28, in the final charge that Jesus gives to his apostles, saying, go teach the nations to obey everything I've commanded you to do. And that is all in reference to a teaching in the Bible, a passage of scripture. And this passage of, of Scripture stretch, stretches from Matthew 5 and ends in Matthew 7. And it's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And that is your constitution and mine. As a part of the kingdom of God, that is our fundamentals, that is our core beliefs, these are our foundations, these are the first works. And can I put it to you this morning that in order to stay in first love, we have to do the first works. We have to do the first works. Am I making sense to you this morning? You know, this, this, this uh, passage of scripture, you know, if you have time, read the whole thing. It's, it's super long. I, I don't have all the time this morning to unravel every single aspect of it. But, you know, it, it addresses so many things. It addresses uh, the people's misconceptions with the law. It spoke into how believers ought to respond to present circumstance, to situations. It's so all-encompassing. But in my observation, the Sermon of the Mount consistently addresses a particular area of the Christian life. Again and again. And it does it in a manner that is really extensive. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you, you will not be able to read it without diving into this area of Christian life. The Sermon of the Mount extensively addresses the issue and the area of human relationship. Everybody say human relationship. relationship. And it it, it speaks into how we ought to relate to one another. How we ought to interact with one another. How we ought to respond to one another. And not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the life of Jesus you see it repeatedly that he addresses this very issue. He, he even models it with his life. He shows believers how to respond to an unrepentful brother, unrepentant brother, how to respond to a person that continues to sin, how to respond to a blatant sinner, how to respond to these people. 
Jesus demonstrated how we ought to respond. And in John 13, 35, it, it says this. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It says that, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And another translation, it says that they will know me by your love for one another. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, the question, if I were a disciple of Bruce Lee, you would, you would instantly know that I desire to be some proponent of martial arts, yes? If I were a disciple of Gordon Ramsay, you would know that, oh, I desire to be some cook <laughs> person, but all chef, <laughs> cook person, man. But as disciples of Jesus, as people who profess to be his followers, what can we then say is that quality, that, that lifestyle that we are longing to emulate, we are longing to reflect. And Jesus said this, that by your love for one another, they will know that you are my disciples. That the significant characteristic of disciples of Jesus is that they love really, really well. Amen? I'm making sense to you. Brandon Manning said this. This is one of my favorite quotes. It said that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Just some light Christian recreational reading right there. Read that again. It says that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Could it be that the incongruency that we have regarding, with regards to the message of love we process, pro- profess and the way we interact with one another be the stumbling block for people to receive the Lord? Could it be that the church's readiness to stand against sin but refusal to sit with sinners be an obstacle? There's something about the way we do relationship, something about the way we relate to one another, something about the way we respond to one another in view of circumstance that reveals Christ, that demonstrates who He is. And this is the first work that we're called to partake of. This is the very thing that will keep us there in first love. I'm making sense to you this morning. I remember one of my one of my favorite testimonies from my time in ministry school was uh, this guy. You know, he he got into town. Um, he he was kicked out of his home. He had no money. Uh, he didn't have a car, and he was just walking around the town that I was living in. And uh, as he was walking, he saw this group of people just laughing, and they were really happy. And and they looked as though they loved each other a lot. And so they were hugging and they were laughing and they were giggling and they were all walking towards, in a certain direction. And this guy, he looked at them, he was so curious. He was like, why do they look so happy? Why do they look like they love each other so much? And he himself has never experienced nor seen a love like that. 
And so in his curiosity, he was like, you know what? I'm going to follow them. And so he starts following them, following them and following them. And they walked up a hill and he uh, followed them. He walked up the same hill as well. And lo and behold, he finds himself in a church service. He followed the happy people and he got to church. And so they, they gave a call for salvation that, that Sunday. And he walked up. And the outreach pastor asked him, like, do you want to receive Jesus? And he was like, uh, yes. And so they, they started conversing. And he was like, how did you, uh, how do you get here? Or, or who brought you here? He was like, I just followed the happy, lovey people. And I'm here. You see, there's something about your love for me, my love for you, something about the way we interact, something about the way we do relationships or the way we're called to do relationships that reveal Christ, that becomes attractive to the world. We are called to love in that manner. We are called to do relationships super duper duper well. Am I making sense to you? Come on. And today I'm going to read parts of Matthew 5, okay? Uh, disclaimer, you know, if you're not interested in any personal change, you're not interested in being shaken from your comfort zone, probably shouldn't open Matthew 5. Uh, it is extremely challenging. And uh, today, you know, um, I have for you, I, I, I picked out uh, different verses and we're just going to read through them. You know, I, I like, um, you know, most of the way, of the well, for most of us, the way we approach the Bible is simply this. You know, we take out a passage of scripture and we're like, oh, this is a great scripture. And we read it, we memorize it, and we try to apply it in our lives. But today, I want to present to you an alternative method of reading the scripture. When Paul describes the armor of God in Ephesians, he refers to the word of God as a, as a sword. But how many of you know that that sword is not a broad sword? nor is it a katana, nor is it like a, a curvy sword. That sword is actually a short Roman dagger. And that dagger had one purpose, and its purpose is to dig out the arrows that got stuck in the Roman soldier. And that was what Paul was saying the Word of God is. The Word of God is like that short Roman dagger that cuts into the flesh and removes these arrows. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to read it in that manner. Reading the Bible, reading the scriptures in, 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 plainly and, and saying, Lord, cut these things out of me. Lord, search me and remove every arrow that should not be there. Instead of cutting bits and scripture out, we should allow the scripture to cut us. Is that making sense? And so we're, we're going to read the Bible that way. It's going to be fun. It's going to be challenging. It's my favorite part. Hey! <laughs> How many of you have your Bibles? Your iPhones? Come on, we are a Bible-bringing church. Amen? <laughs> we need our Bibles. Okay. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. If you're there, just shout there. Great. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And it says this, You have heard that it was said to, you, to those of all, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, verse 22, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever who says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. We're going to do this AA meeting style. 
How many of you has called someone stupid or called someone a fool in the last month? You know, the, the word raka simply means empty-headed. But if you actually, actually dive into what the, the word raka means for the people of that day, it's actually like, it was almost a curse word. It's almost a cuss word. And if you turn to your screen, we have every cuss word that we would say these days. Can I put the next slide? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All scared, right? <laughs> Wow, it's going to educate you. <laughs> no, that wouldn't be kosher. No, we don't, we don't do stuff like that. <laughs> you know, the, the word for that, the, in verse 21, it says that angry, you know, uh, uh, verse 22, it says that, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, the word for angry here is not that passive emotion, but it's actually an active word. It's the Greek word, or gitzo, which means fixed opposition. Whoever is angry with his brother. That, it doesn't mean you have certain feelings and emotions, but it's, it means this, that you have settled within yourself that I'm going to oppose him. I'm going to come against him. And that is what Matthew 5 is saying to us, that the moment you decide to stand apart from your brother, the moment you decide to break fellowship and come against you are in danger of sin. Amen? Scary. But it's so easy for us this day. You know, we are like, hey, it's justifiable. It's completely, it, it, it completely makes sense. He did this to me, so I get to stand apart from him, and I get to come against him. And we look at that reaction, we look at that response as justifiable, as justice. But how many of you know that Jesus on the cross redefined what justice means for you and me? He's, the cross is where justice was personified, where justice was expressed. And what did it look like? It looked like people nailing him on the cross, people coming against him, but him not retorting, him not resorting to violence, but him choosing to love and forgive. That is what's justifiable for you and me. He redefined what justice is. Proverbs 18 verse 21, familiar with it. It says, life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Bible also says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We see a correlation between the heart and the mouth. Could it be that we are facing certain circumstances, circumstances and issues in our life because of the way we talk? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Bible says that out from the heart flows the issues of life. Could it be that we're experiencing certain circumstances because of the way we speak? Or by extension, the way we speak to one another. We need to change that. Whoever says you're fool is in danger of the hellfire. Raka. <laughs> Let's move on. Verse 23 says this, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
How many of you have worshipped the Lord while bearing an offence or while being upset with someone? It's an AA style. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. Uh, uh, John, he, it, it talks about how in that hour, worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. How many of you are familiar with that verse? Spirit and truth. And that word for truth there is not the word that describes theological truth or not the word that describes doctrinal truth. But that word for truth simply means this. It simply means nothing hidden. In that day, worshippers will worship in spirit and with nothing hidden. What is Jesus trying to say? Jesus is trying to say that you cannot worship me with areas in your life hidden. It can speak to sin. It can speak to offense. You holding a grudge. You not, with, not wanting to, to settle that grudge. You not wanting to be upfront with your offense. That thing of hiding, the Lord speaks again. And it says this, it says, Go, be reconciled with a brother before you worship me. And we see the priorities of the Lord here. He's saying that before you come and offer worth to me, before you come to the altar, be restored and be reconciled in the relationships. You can even say that the Lord is more passionate for us to be reconciled and restore one another than for us to come to the altar. That is huge, guys. That is huge because you and I, we have prioritized the worship service over everything else. But the Lord saying, no. He's saying this, this relationship, us being right with one another should take a higher priority. It should take a higher precedence. We need to start focusing on how well we do relationships over how well we do a worship service. Makes sense. <laughs> let's, let's skip. Let's skip, skip a bunch and let's look at verse 33. Verse 33. It says, Again, you have heard that it was said to you, those of all, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is, by, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, that's true. And verse 37, it says this, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than this, these is from the evil one. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Studies have shown that the ultimate saboteur of relationships is a lack of integrity. And that is what the Bible is aptly describing. Integrity simply is this, that your yes is yes and your no is no. Here's what happens. When, when you promise something and you don't deliver, it leads to mistrust. And mistrust will always hinder intimacy. And where there's no intimacy, there can be no relationship. A lack of integrity will sabotage your relationship. And to be honest, how many of us have said we will do something or we are for something and have backed away from our word? How many of you have done that? I've done that multiple times. But the Bible says, no. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. We are to be a people of integrity. Can someone say amen? 
And recently, uh, no, never mind, let's not go into that. <laughs> We're running out of time. <laughs> let's look at verse 38. It says this. Ooh, this one. Oh. It says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. You know, I've always looked at this thing as a more figurative kind of thing. Like, no one is actually going to do this. Like, this is just a suggestion or a metaphor. You know, but I heard of this story recently where um, uh, a renowned atheist uh, was invited to, to share on his views on, on atheism, on his views on God in a Muslim college. And uh, as he was sharing, he noticed that the, one, the top Christian professor in that university was sitting in the front row. And as he was making his case about why God does not exist, he looks at the professor and says, you, come up. And he invites the Christian professor up and says that, in a moment, I'm going to prove to you that there is no God. And as the Christian professor walks up, he turns to him and he slaps him in the right cheek. He slaps him in the right cheek. And he said, there is no way this man is going to let me slap him on the left cheek. And to his horror, the professor turns and presents his left cheek to him and said, do as you will. And he was, he was amazed, he was dumbfounded. And then he said to him, and he said to the class, he said, well, I'm going to prove it to you. There is no way he's going to allow me to do the next thing. And he turns to the professor and he said this, I want you to remove your pants. I want your pants. Give me your pants. And the professor turns to the class and said, I'm so sorry for what's about to happen. And he removes his pants and gives it to this man because he asked for it. And as he leaves the hall, surely embarrassed, he goes back to his office, puts on a fresh set of pants, and uh, as he was leaving his office, you know, his day has ended, he looked out and he saw a line of students, Muslim students, lined as far as the eye can see, waiting to talk to him. And each one of them came up to him and apologized. I'm so sorry for what happened to you. And with every single person, he had the opportunity to share the gospel. There's something about us modeling this, us not retaliating Something about displaying a love like this that reveals Jesus. That is the first works. Amen? Last one and we'll close. Verse 43, it says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And goes on and says, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Bible says it's okay to have enemies. But this is our response that we bless them, we pray for them, and we do good towards them. Those who stand against us, those who, who consistently and continually undermine our beliefs, those who, who profess to be anti-Christians, we are called to bless, do good, and pray.
There's something about the way we love, something about the way we relate, something about the way we respond that reveals His love. And by extension, by doing all these things, which are the first works, it keeps us white hot, fiery, passionate for the first love. Can we stand? Let's have the next verse up. And this is the conclusion to to all the verses I read. It says this, that when you do all these things, when you love, when you make a choice to respond in love, when we relate to one another in love, this is what we become. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And you have to recognize the, the context for which the word son is used. Sons, in, it, it's always a reflection of who the father is. When you are called a son of your father, you are the best representation, to some degree the exact representation of his values, of his principles, of his practices. When you choose to act and respond in this manner, you look like him you become a son of the Father. At the end of the day, all that we do, all that we teach, all that we say, all that we pray is for that one goal and that one purpose, for us to become more like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together.